This episode of New Politics was released on the 16th of September, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the Housing Australia Future Fund legislation finally comes to fruition, the misinformation campaign on the voice to Parliament, sexual harassment and the heavy breathing of Parliament House, the forgotten COVID pandemic, and the media still hasn't got the message that the Liberal Party is not the government. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Tim Gurner's business advisor. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription and you can also subscribe on Substack. But whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. been another action-packed week in Parliament and it started off with the big news that the government's Housing Australia Future Fund bill is going to be supported by the Australian Greens. So this is all going to become a reality and we've long argued that it's nowhere near enough to resolving housing issues across Australia but still it would have been better for the Greens to pass this legislation some time ago and then work on further reform. So it seems like they've taken on that advice and this all had to play out politically. The government had to keep pushing its case and the Greens had to show to its supporters that it's making demands of the government and holding the government to account. And they've managed to extract a $3 billion concession from the government for social housing. It took a while for the Housing Future Fund to come through, but it's good news that it finally has. Yeah, it is good news. It's nowhere near good enough news, but steps in the right directions should be acknowledged as steps in the right direction. The number of houses being built is laughingly small, but it's still better than none, I guess. The Greens have, and I'll I'll be fair to the Greens too, they've managed to take a position in which they were seen as the blockers and turn that around somewhat. I think there'll still be a little bit of a mistrust of Greens from Labor supporters for a while, but that's the nature of politics too. And when this first happened, I, I mentioned that the Greens had mishandled the politics of it, but I think they've started to turn that round. And they're making their own supporters happy and some of their fellow travellers happy. And as you said, they got concessions from the government. And hopefully they'll keep working on holding the government to account and improving policy. Just because one piece of legislation is passed doesn't mean that further legislation can't be passed, that things that are agreed to now can't be improved in the future. And so hopefully they'll do that And hopefully they'll have learnt lessons and they won't fall into the traps that the experienced Labor Party led them into. Again, I wish the government would change the funding model, but small steps are better than no steps or backward steps. And there were criticisms about how long all of this took. The Greens said that they wouldn't look at this bill again until October it's sort of mid-September, so I guess it's one month early. But they might have taken some time speaking to their electorates or having some more time to think all of this through. But this is exactly how Parliament works. The government presents a bill, 
Senators make ambit claims, there's a bit of horse trading and a deal is finally made. And we've always said that there needs to be a lot more done in this field, but housing, renting, affordability issues, it's a complex problem that doesn't have a quick fix available to it. But it's this great intersection between politics of all levels, and that's federal politics, state politics and local councils. There's also emotional attachments to housing. There's pricing and resale issues. But housing is a basic human right, and a country like Australia shouldn't really have this type of problem. The other point is that these issues can't be resolved overnight. There's still a long way to go, and there's a wide range of different policies that will need to be introduced, and this is just one of them. We have a correspondent who who writes to us who points out that there's a certain attitude towards immigration that makes these things more difficult, that we're getting in too many people too quickly. This is something that we need to do a lot of hard and honest thinking about. I'm actually in favour of immigration, by the way, and I'm in favour of immigration from all over the world. But I certainly don't want to see people exploited and used to profit a small group of people who can exploit desperate people, whether they immigrated here, whether they didn't immigrate here. But I do think that is one of the the factors. And with all of those criticisms that people have been making about the Australian Greens taking too long on this or holding up this legislation for three months or, or whatever it was, and they didn't actually end up getting that much of the legislation changed. But that really wasn't the point of all of this. A lot of this is about long-term politics and the whole issue of affordable housing and some of the ideas that they were talking about, such as rent freezes and rent caps. Now, all of these ideas have been put out into the public domain over the past three months. And the Greens are positioning themselves as the party of renters and social housing. And in the long term, I think, and David, you've talked a lot about the diminishing level of support for the major parties and the possible rise in independence and minor parties, not so much in the short term, but definitely over the longer term period. And these are the demographics that won't find the answers that they're looking for within the Labor Party or the Liberal Party or the National Party, they'll be looking at parties like the Australian Greens for positive solutions to all of these issues that exist in society. Or they'll be looking at independents sitting on the crossbench, possibly holding the balance of power in future elections to put pressure on the government of the day to start doing all of these things in the public interest. So, of course, it's a short-term dynamic at the moment. Housing and affordability issues can't wait for another three or four elections for actions to take place. But I think that everyone in this situation has got a bit of everything that they wanted. And as far as those changes to the legislation are concerned, and, and a little bit of political benefit for them as well. Again, the speed of it is one of the big issues that we've got to keep. We can't fix this over five years. We've got to fix it over three in some kind of way. And I think, too, one of the first things we do is we keep it out of the hands of private commercial property developers. I think this has to be government-run and owned and maybe an option for the people in the housing to buy it, but from the government. And, of course, the other issue that tends not to be mentioned is the high level of vacancy in urban areas. It's as high as one in five houses in some places. Opening those places up to permanent or semi-permanent accommodation would go a long way to solving the problem. And you can use the carrot, okay, you open it up, well, government subsidises the rent, or you can use the sticks. If you don't open it up, we will tax it to such a level that it becomes unviable. 
and sell it to someone who will open it up. So I think more building because there are areas which do need further housing, but also making it more attractive to have long-term occupiers, whether renting, whether owning, whether a mixture of both, I think is an important factor to consider. The writs for the Voice of Parliament referendum have been issued and that's a legal formality after the Prime Minister announced the date a few weeks ago and we didn't get the usual spectacle of media crews and helicopters circling Yarralumla like they normally do for a general election but everything else will follow the same process as holding a general election and we just have to see how all of this pans out over the next few weeks but the big focus this week was on the campaign of misinformation coming from the no side where the phone banking center for the no campaign is ringing up random people and telling them all sorts of lies about what will happen if the voice of parliament gets up including the abolition of australia day pushing the message that the voice will be used to push for compensation claims payment for reparations and a push for a treaty I actually thought that a lot of these things might be a good idea, but maybe that's just me. And many of these talking points are now being used by Liberal Party politicians, including Peter Dutton and Susan Lay. Well, the scope of the voice, as described by the Prime Minister, is deliberately undefined. So that means the Prime Minister can't rule out that the voice has a de facto veto role on, for example, our national days of commemoration, such as Australia Day or Anzac Day. And... The thing is that the voice has been sold to the Australian people as only providing a new perspective for decision-making when it comes to Indigenous issues. But this idea now that it's effectively a casting vote on matters affecting every Australian is really concerning. We predicted a few weeks ago that this fear-mongering would ramp up in the lead-up to October the 14th, that's the date of the referendum, but the claims are getting more outrageous, more ridiculous, and it's hard to see where all of this is going to end up. It seems to me that the No campaign is panicking. It seems to me that the No campaign is seeing figures that probably aren't being released to the public because parties do this too, they commission private data that's a little bit more targeted and a little bit less error in it. And it seems to me that the fact that this type of information has been leaked suggests that the No campaign is in trouble and it knows that it's in trouble. Now, that's not to say that the Yes campaign, which has been less than inspiring, shall we say, should be complacent and think, yes, we're going to win this. But I think both campaigns have made strategic errors and really given that a referendum shouldn't be this type of campaign the yes campaign fell down there the no campaign has fallen down in that australia knows now that it's built on a lie a ton of lies and fears and fear-mongering that is just not true there might be people out there thinking oh it is true it is true i know it's true it's not true i can't believe that in a supposedly intelligent and educated country like australia People are arguing over how long the Uluru Statement from the heart is. It's one page. (laughs) There are 26 pages of mostly supplementary documents that have no further impact on the statement. There's no talk of land claims being further than what they are limited to now, which is crown land. So your backyard is safe. You're probably more likely losing your backyard to the bank than you are to any Aboriginal claim. In fact, you are more likely. So all of these lies, Marsha Langton said, when you 
unpack the ideas, it leads back to racism and stupidity, which is true. Her words were then twisted to state that she said that people voting no were racist and stupid. Some are. Not everyone is. She never really said that. Now, Marsha Langton has problematic ties to the mining industry, etc., etc., but we should also be very clear that what she said was what she said. And the newspapers in correcting it didn't say Marsha Langton didn't say this. They said she denied saying it, which is a whole different level of deception. I think the no campaign is panicking hard. There is talk too that there are people in the no campaign who are worried that Marsha Langton's going rightly, as in she has the right to and she probably should, sue them for defamation. And now they're all panicking because they know that they have no case. So you mentioned that the no campaign is panicking. My feeling is that the no campaign has really gone mad, and that's not to disparage them, but these are totally unreasonable and desperate people who have got no intention of reasonable debate or reasonable discussion, and they've been pushing the misinformation as far as possible, and then when they're accused of pushing misinformation, they use that opportunity to push even more misinformation. So we can see that this is not how normal people behave. It's totally irrational. And it's as though the Liberal Party is really believing that memo that they received, that if they can't defeat the voice of Parliament, then they've got no chance of winning the next election. And if you were so confident of your cause, well, you wouldn't need to run a campaign based on pure lies, fabrications and misinformation. And it's a campaign tactic imported from the Republicans in the United States. Donald Trump used the same techniques, although it probably started all the way back with Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. It's the tactic from Newt Gingrich in the 1990s and then further refined by Mitch McConnell, if you can call it that. Say no to absolutely everything, doesn't matter what it is, you seed absolutely nothing, you spread lies and misinformation and you mislead people. So that might be the tactic, but then What's the point of all of this? Politics has to be that relationship between political action and real people in the real world. Otherwise, there's no point to it. But for these types of reactionary conservatives, it's like an ethereal type of victory. It doesn't matter what you've won. It's all about winning. It doesn't matter how badly people are affected by your bad decisions. It's all about winning and the power and the influence. And This strategy always results in bad government. Tony Abbott, the spoiler in opposition, gets into government, doesn't know how to govern. You know, what did he ever achieve during his two years as prime minister? The same for Donald Trump. Blow everything up, drain the swamp or whatever. What did he achieve during his four years as president? And Peter Dutton and the Liberal Party are now using the same technique. And we can confidently predict the same result as well. If Australia ever has the misfortune of this guy becoming Prime Minister, it will be the same as his predecessors. Get into government, but won't know what to do when he gets there. Because if you keep pushing lies and misinformation to survive, the public quickly works you out, as they did with Scott Morrison. Yeah. I would have thought the better strategy would be to say, this is above politics, we are going to support it. But when it's in, we will work very hard to make sure it's the very, very best model and that our model is the better way of doing it. Instead, the notion that he can't shake that he's a racist in the public has just been solidified. And if the referendum is not upheld and the no vote prevails, he will go down as the racist who who stopped the no vote and made Australia a tiny small-minded, bigoted, parochial country. 
now it's not all his fault. We have John Howard, we have Tony Abbott, we have Scott Morrison as part of that. We're spoiled for choice there. Well, we are. <laughs> if it doesn't get up, he will be remembered as the racist who ran a terrible campaign. So his winning strategy has put him into a lose-lose position. And he's folded over to these American billionaires who we know now are funding or at least partially funding it. And American advisors are in there. Apparently Dutton was told, say something outrageous every day. Don't worry about repeating yourself. This has basically finished his career. Not a moment too soon, let's be fair. But even if he becomes prime minister, as you said, they'll do nothing with it. They won't build a better Australia in the vision that they think is a better Australia. They'll just rot the system, act like children, be disgraceful, and when Labor gets back in again, if they ever do, or whenever the next government gets back in again, they'll have to spend their time cleaning up the mess that was made rather than doing something practical. And it's also a question of how referenda questions are used in Australia. So we can see that the voice to parliament referendum is just being used as a testing ground for some pretty vile people and a chance for those people to be platformed in a way that wouldn't usually be possible. And referenda offers the best opportunity for this because it is like a general election. You get the media platform, it's like a campaign, everyone gets to vote. And the only difference is that there's no chance of a change of government. So you can experiment with your political messaging, you can try out different tactics, you can boost people's profiles. And it's got nothing to do with the issue of the referendum itself. And you could probably have a referendum question to ban torture in Australia, and the Liberal Party would still work out a way of campaigning against that just to get a no vote. So these are the rules that Conservatives play by in the sense that there are no rules. And the Liberal Party has had that relationship with the US Republican Party since the early 1990s. And haven't we all suffered because of that? But it's also a question of what the Labor government can do about all of this. And none of this is new. We've known about that relationship between the Liberal Party and the US Republicans for some time. This is what they do. They really get engaged with the dark arts of politics. So what can the Labor government do? Do they set up their own dirt units? And I know that they've got some operating out there. Or do they start using similar sorts of tactics against the Liberal Party? And I guess we all lose out if that's the situation that it ends up being. And On the voice of Parliament, as you mentioned before, David, the government has really been outflanked by the Liberal Party here. Perhaps they weren't expecting them to go completely ballistic on all of this, but this is just who they are. And there were some suggestions during the week that the Yes campaign should have had some clearer spokespeople doing all of their messaging. Here's the Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews. I've got great faith in Victorians. Victorians are a good deal smarter than many people perhaps on the no side, think they are. Like People can make their own rational judgments. And I'm not telling anybody how to vote in this upcoming referendum. I can only share with people the reasons I'm voting yes. You get better outcomes when you listen. We need to do something different. We need to stop doing the same thing, hoping for a different outcome. Because the evidence is clear. Like The programs we're running at the moment are not working. We're spending billions of dollars to go backwards. There's a better way. It starts with listening to Aboriginal people, Uh, And just like today's scholarship announcements comes from listening to teachers, uh, I think better outcomes for Aboriginal people come from listening to them, gathering up their wisdom and unique perspective. That's how we'll get much better outcomes. And again, if you've done something one way forever and it doesn't work, then logic tells you maybe we should try something else. 
And I think it's it's safe to vote yes. It's, I think, smart to vote yes. Uh, for me, it's the right thing to do as well because there's also the recognition of the oldest continuous culture known to human history as part of that question. That's why I'm voting yes. Uh, again, people have to make up their own judgments. But anyone who thinks that people are swayed by mis- misinformation and just outright lies, I think that underestimates the Victorian community. And I think that's a very unwise thing to do. So that's pretty clear and succinct. And that's probably what it should have been like from political leaders right from the start. So I mentioned that the referendum is like a warm-up act for the Liberal Party in preparation for the next federal election campaign in 2025, but it's also a warm-up act for the government as well. So it needs to have a level of clear thinking, not just on the Voice to Parliament referendum, but all of their other communication strategies as well. Otherwise, the next election might end up being a lot closer than everyone is expecting it to be. It's hard to know. I mean, you don't turn up to a street fight brandishing your copy of the Marquess of Queensbury's rules and no other tactic and expect to come out of it okay. Having said that, you don't cover yourself in glory by turning up to a street fight anyway. Yes Campaign has had some very good, at least on paper, unofficial John Farnham handing the voice, the song You're the Voice, over to the campaign and, and then the rest of the really Australian music legends. Probably not all of them. Some people have kept quiet because they don't want to enter into politics at all. That's perfectly fine. But that type of thing helps. Having prominent Indigenous people get up and say, this is what my people want. I have seen videos of Indigenous people saying, I'm voting no for these reasons, which weren't terribly clear. But we know that the polling is consistent, that over 80% of Indigenous voters are going to vote yes, which is, of course, the compelling argument. Why the Yes campaign is not just hammering this. Instead, we get the head of the graziers and pastoralists, I think, in Western Australia, getting up and saying that it's a bad thing and we shouldn't be doing it with no questioning as to who he was or what biases. And, of course, I'm not saying he's not allowed to have these opinions and that even that he shouldn't have been given an heir, but we should know exactly who these people are so we can judge, well, is this a valid claim? The pastoralists and graziers are obviously protecting their own interests. And, again, that's fine, but we should know who we're dealing with rather than this struggling farmer, one person in all of Australia, by the way, is getting up and voting no. It's a bizarre state we find ourselves in. And the Yes campaign and the government should have known that the Liberal Party would have gone ballistic in this because that's all they've ever done since Tony Abbott became leader of the opposition. They've just gone ballistic. And I know hindsight's twenty twenty vision, but surely the strategy would have been to shut them down as quickly as possible in terms of the ideas that they were trying to promulgate. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon. Their killers got all free, but their shadows never leave.
The Liberal MP and former Minister Karen Andrews revealed that a Liberal Party colleague was harassing her in Parliament question time. I did have one of my male colleagues who used to breathe on the back of my neck in question time. So what? Yeah, I'd just be sitting there minding my own business and I would have the back of my neck breathed on and if I asked a question it would be, that was a great question, thrusting and probing and oh, 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 that was pretty funny. Well, not really actually. But do you know what the issue is? There would be people that would say, can't she take a joke? And this sounds like typical behaviour from male Liberal Party MPs and to me it's not that surprising and not that other political parties are immune from this kind of behaviour, but it seems to be quite prominent in the Liberal and National Party who still have their man problem. And a few people have suggested, well, why didn't Karen Andrews report this at the time? As if workplace harassment is just a matter of telling someone and then it all goes away. And especially if that person that's behaving like this is probably one of the chief whips in the party. And looking at the parliamentary seating plan since Karen Andrews has been in Parliament, it's been narrowed down to one of four men. And You wouldn't want to be seen doing this sort of stuff openly in question time. So it's probably a man seated in the back row of the parliament. And if I was a betting man, I'd put my money on Warren Inch. But even if we don't know the name of the heavy breather, and calling this out at the time would have been the end of Karen Andrews' political career, but it shows that the Liberal Party has still got a lot of gender issues that it needs to sort out. And it's a problem that's not going to disappear anytime soon. It's just not on. I don't agree with Karen Andrews on anything politically, I don't think, and I've, I've found her and, and a not a terribly effective member of parliament. Having said that, no woman deserves this. I don't care if it's Karen Andrews, Sarah Hansen-Young, Lydia Thorpe, Pauline Hanson, Suzanne Lay, Makaya Cash, Tanya Plibersek, Katie Gallagher. It doesn't matter. All of those people deserve and need a safe workplace free of harassment. There's plenty to disagree with them on. There's plenty to criticise them about, depending on your politics, of course. They shouldn't need to put up with that. It's appalling. It really is. I haven't looked deeply into it, so I don't know who the, the four are, but whoever they are should be removed from their seat instantly and ignore the by-election. Of course, Peter Dutton isn't going to do this as party leader, and I doubt the Liberal Party is going to do this. We have the example of Barnaby Joyce a few years back who just happened to be somehow cleared of very serious and credible complaints by a high-profile woman some years back where he just happened to get off somehow because uh, it's Barnaby, we expect it. I hope that the Liberal Party has enough fortitude, if it is a Liberal Party politician, of course, to deal with it properly. And whoever it is, I hope that the Parliament has enough fortitude to deal with it properly. Well, Parliament should be a safe working environment, not just for the different staffers and other assorted people who work at Parliament House, but for the members of Parliament too. And it shouldn't be a situation where it's just the rough and tumble of politics and people need to get used to it. As you said, David, this behaviour is unacceptable. And we're not sure when it happened, if it was recently or when Karen Andrews first went into politics as a backbencher. It doesn't really matter. It's being called out now. And it would never be acceptable anywhere else, in the corporate boardroom, at a school staff meeting or in an office workplace. So why should politics be any different? And the independent member for North Sydney, Kylie Tink, she called out this parliamentary behaviour last week. 
Yesterday's behaviour left me feeling like my senses had been assaulted by what I experienced as excessive and unconstructive noise and aggress aggression being thrown around the room. Mr Speaker, sadly, this is not the first time I've experienced that sensation during question time in this chamber. Some may argue that yesterday's was an exceptional circumstance where the opposition chose to dissent from your ruling, as they were entitled to do so, but be that as it may, once the dissenting motion was moved by the opposition, I believe the tone of the debate was overly aggressive and personalised, with numerous examples of condescending and offensive language designed, I believe, to intimidate others within the chamber. In any other professional environment, this sort of behaviour would be completely unacceptable. As all in this place know, I stood yesterday to ask you to bring the chamber to order, and I thank you for doing that. If I could have, Mr Speaker, I would have left the chamber yesterday, but it is my understanding that, ironically, that is not acceptable behaviour. I then voted on the subsequent motions as I thought was appropriate, and it was following the votes that perhaps the most confronting experience took place for me personally yesterday with one particular member from the opposition while returning to his seat, yelling at me aggressively and at others on the crossbench. His tone was hostile and his body language was aggressive. And to the best of my recollections, his words were, well, where were you today then, hey? You say you want clearer answers? Well, that was your chance. And where were you? As he yelled this at me, he was shaking his head and looking at me in a way that I found to be aggressive and honestly quite confronting. Mr Speaker, had this been the first time I'd found myself the direct attention of this sort of behaviour, I may have brushed it off. But this follows a pattern I've experienced more than once since I entered this chamber, and I've noticed many other female colleagues have experienced this sort of treatment. As a member of this parliament, someone working here in this place, I do not feel proud of the way my workplace was represented yesterday. And quite frankly, I did not feel safe. But I came to this place wanting to speak for my community in what I consider to be the highest chamber in the land. And I did that because I believe this place should be a place of mutual respect, learned discussion, and dare I say it, a capacity to listen to each other. But as evidenced in yesterday's display, I fear we are such a distance from that reality. Kylie Tink is a new member of parliament. But it's the same message that we've had about Parliament over the past decade or so, that Parliament House is not a safe working environment for women. In fact, it's not safe for anyone. And that's not going to change until the system changes. And we've got a different government in Canberra now. They've got the power to change the way Parliament operates. They've got the power to change all the rules of Parliament. They've got the power to change all the rules of parliamentary procedures and processes if they wanted to. But whatever is happening now is totally unacceptable and it definitely needs to change. Yeah, Kylie Tink, of course, is a friend of the show. I interviewed her during the election. It doesn't make it any better or any worse that she's put up with this. Again, Parliament should be a safe space for all the women involved. Karen Andrews, Kylie Tink and all the others. I hope justice is not only done but seen to be done. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon.
and we've been asked about what's happening with COVID numbers across Australia because we haven't talked about it for a long time. And it was just over two years ago where if there were one or two cases that cropped up anywhere across Australia, that entire state would close down. And in Sydney, we had some of the longest lockdown periods. And in Western Sydney, it was almost like a police state over here. But we just had to do what had to be done to minimise the effects of COVID until most of the population received vaccinations. Now, two years later, the numbers are an average of just over 700 cases per day and the world seems to be going on as though nothing has happened. It seems that there's a lot of cases that are being picked up in hospitals where the requirement to wear a mask has been totally removed. So this seems to be a hidden issue now. There's still around 30 people dying from COVID each week and that's down from the 200 people that were dying each week in July. There also wasn't much interest in the media about that either. And there's an average of 900 people hospitalised every day. And the whole idea was to not overwhelm the hospital system. So that's been averted. But it's best for governments to be prepared and reduce the risk of these issues. But it's almost as though they're trying their best to increase the risk. And there are new strands of COVID that are coming through. And the talk about this being the end of the pandemic, I think, are a little bit premature. The pandemic should be over. Proper management of the pandemic would have seen it end. And it has ended in some countries. And not by the countries just declaring it's over, but by minimal to no new cases a day. In Australia... It seems that we've given up, and this is both at a state level and a federal level. Why we gave it up when other diseases have been totally eradicated? Partly it's we have a feral mass media who allowed the lie that vaccinations were bad to spread, not directly, but by just not really taking it on. We have opposition parties that disrupted with the full support of the media. It got expensive and government priorities turned the other way. Of course, when a few years when specialists are suggesting that it will roar back internally, that it lays dormant in your system and flares back up. I saw an article today saying that one in four COVID cases will result in long-term lung issues for people. And it affects every organ in the body, ultimately. So I I don't quite know why they gave up. I mean, I suppose Victoria just had to give up because each time it started to get somewhere, New South Wales would open the borders or let someone through or let people off a cruise ship and then let them disperse through the country. So I suppose you, you would get sick of that. It's upsetting that we lost two years through half-hearted mismanagement and really we're losing probably three to six months of every year because people are getting sick maybe we need to lock down for another month so it does seem to be a hidden pandemic at the moment and certainly the level of recording covid cases has come right down or the numbers that are being recorded have come right down but the australian data scientist mike honey he suggested that since the requirement to report a covid case was dropped the number of unreported cases could be 14 times higher than what's being officially recorded or around 10,000 cases per day all across Australia. And just because it's not being talked about anymore, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. The COVID-19 pandemic declaration is still active around the world. So it's not over either officially or in reality. And, And I'll accept that there isn't any appetite for 
lockdowns. But that's not what's being called for at the moment. But what is being called for is for more understanding about what the risks are. In the hospital system, for example, if that's where you're getting a lot of your cases and around 10% of people who contract COVID in hospital are dying, well, it's just madness to remove that requirement to wear a mask in hospital. And if you're in hospital as a patient, you're there as a vulnerable person. So I'm not sure what it will take for governments to start taking more notice of this, but the pandemic is definitely not over. It started off too timidly. We had the wrong people in charge at the time, particularly in New South Wales, where you had the Morrison government as uh, federally and the Berejiklian government at a state level. It brought out the worst excesses of government. And the few things that they did right were far outweighed by the many, many things they did wrong. Oh, but I think there's also, about side of the health issues, there's other factors going on. When the pandemic commenced in early 2020, we suggested that it was time for the whole world to take stock of which direction it was going in. And I think it also gave the world a rare opportunity to start doing things differently. And that worked for a little while, working from home arrangements, a form of universal basic income. Greenhouse emissions went right down at that time. But corporations now don't want people to work from home anymore, even though they're generally more productive in that environment. They want people to get back to their offices and revive the central business districts all around Australia. Governments don't want to provide any more financial support. Greenhouse emissions are back to where they were before the pandemic commenced. So there was a chance to change everything for the better, but it seems that governments and business are just wedded to doing the things in the way that they've always done. And it just doesn't seem to matter too much for them that people are still contracting COVID, still dying from COVID and still suffering from long-term effects of COVID as well. Yeah. There are some people, of course, who can't work from home. Delivery drivers, health professionals, journalists, in that sometimes you've got to go out. But if you can work from home, you should be able to work. It's cheaper to work from home. You could probably extend people's weekends, making them happier and healthier. Or they might decide to work every day, little bits, five or six hours a day over seven days rather than eight or ten over four. The flexibility, you can still call people in for meetings. You don't have to not see anyone. It seems to me that there's not enough strategic thinking about how technology can work to everybody's advantage. Now, I do know that there are people who do not like working from home. They love the the social aspect of going to work. They love the purpose of catching the train in or driving into an office, keeping their work life separate from their home life, all of that is valid too. But surely a good employer could negotiate everything for everybody to make their product or service as effective and efficient as possible. I suspect that underneath the whole we should get people back are a lot of commercial property investors who want to see their offices being used again. I don't completely disagree with where they're coming from. But I think we've moved on and and that's one of the things COVID changed forever, that yep, there are those who can work from home and why shouldn't they? And of course, it did show that some jobs weren't actually very useful. It wasn't that people were lazy, but they didn't actually produce very much. And it's hard to look productive when you're not wandering around an office talking to people. There was an excellent book written some years back called BS Jobs that I commend to everyone about how capitalism likes to extend middle management positions for the image and for the sense that it must be a successful company if it's got people doing jobs that aren't actually that productive. Graeber is the author. It's a very interesting book and a very interesting critique of the capitalist system. 
And there have been a few debates about what the role of the journalist is within the Australian media, and this has come about because within the mainstream media more recently, there's been a habit from journalists and media outlets to just directly report whatever is coming from the opposition, and then this directs the news of the day. Most of what Peter Dutton might say is not newsworthy and more of what he is saying is not actually truthful at all, but he is the leader of the opposition. So I'd expect that some of what he might have to say would be newsworthy, not all of it. And we've got this unusual situation in federal politics where the opposition shadow ministers are almost presented as actual ministers and we tend to see more of the opposition than we actually do of the government. And this is quite unusual within Australian media where the Liberal National Opposition has been placed on a pedestal at the same level as the government but they're not the government and the media never did this when the Labor Party was in opposition for nine years and it's a very obvious difference no one is asking who is Peter Dutton like they did with Anthony Albanese when he was the leader of the opposition because we see Peter Dutton and his commentary every single day of the week but some mainstream journalists suggested that their job as political reporters is just to reflect and repeat what politicians say but it's the job of journalists to show judgment and discern what is newsworthy or notable or relevant to the public. Otherwise, they're just being played by politicians. It is the job of a journalist to hold power to account, find out what the truth is and call out the rubbish whenever they see it, not just repeat and amplify that rubbish on behalf of that political leader. It's, it is really odd. Yes, the leader of the opposition should be given airtime, but not before the government has had its chance to express its case. There was a really funny thread on X, formerly Twitter, about how Peter Dutton got a stain in his pants and how he he fixed that and how the media ran with it. It is that banal. Now, I suppose you could argue that the current ministry is extraordinarily busy and doesn't really have time to talk to the media, especially given the quality of most, not all, but most Australian political journalists. But I don't think that's really the case. The mainstream media, which now sadly includes ABC, would rather have some raving lunatic speak something highly controversial and demonstrably false because it gets clicks, because it gets people watching, because it gets people talking, than to have a a reasoned member of the government held to account. I'm not saying they should be given, anyone should be given a soft time. I was listening to a podcast yesterday. It was on the Young Turks. And he said that training in the United States is to just let people talk, to not correct them, to not push back against them. And that seems to be the model here at the moment. Just let Peter Dutton, Susan Lee, Michaelia Cash, James Patterson, Barnaby Joyce say anything and no follow-up question, no, wait a second, that doesn't sound right or where did you get that information from or why are you saying this or deciding eh, that's not news, let's not run it. Go and find someone else interesting to talk to. And that's very sad for journalism. The best journalism, of course, is questioning what's going on. There's a meme that you've all probably seen that says, If one party says it's raining and the other party says it's not raining, it's not your job to quote both parties. It's your job to look out the window and see if it is in fact raining. And I think we need more of that. We have some of it. I'll be fair. There are some very good journalists in Australia that will do that, although I know they tend not to get as much airtime as the ones that don't. But nonetheless, I think we need that Royal Commission. I think we've called for every single podcast and we need media reform sooner rather than later. 
And there were a few cases of this behaviour recently where Scott Morrison gave a briefing to an ABC journalist about warning the Prime Minister not to accept an invitation to visit China and not to hold a meeting with Xi Jinping in a few months' time and also gave a running commentary about how Scott Morrison spoke to the Coalition Party Room about all of these warnings and if the meeting went ahead it would show that Australia is acquiescing to China And then there was the commentary about how all of this was very well received by the Coalition Party Room and it also quotes a few unnamed sources who said that it was great that the Coalition had stood up to the Chinese government. Now, all of this is garbage and we've said this before. Whenever a journalist refers to unnamed sources, it's code for, well, I've just made this up or the person that gave me these quotes, they've just made it up too and I was too lazy to check whether it was true or not. And That's an essential piece of information that people need to know. If you want to get a good reading of what's happening in the news and how it's been reported, unnamed sources means that it's just made up. And something that Scott Morrison says, irrespective of what we might think of him, well, that might be newsworthy. He was the former Prime Minister, so there'd be a public interest in that. But where's the discernment for what was being said? This was reported as a major news story when it's actually not. The journalist should be thinking, well, hang on, why is Scott Morrison telling me this story? Why is he telling me this story now? Can I verify it with someone else? And as it turned out, the story was released by Scott Morrison mainly to promote himself and to embarrass the Albanese government over an issue where there should be bipartisan support for it. The ABC journalist in question didn't seem to ask these questions and nor did the editor who decided to publish the story. So we can see where the level of journalism is at in Australian politics and I don't think the mainstream media reporting has ever been as bad as it is now. And we also had a major news story about Senator James Patterson. Now he walks through the doors of Parliament House in Canberra early in the morning and says that parliamentary staff should be security vetted. So this becomes big news. There's no context, there's no real value in what he says, but it's reported as a big story, even though he's a member of the opposition. There's no counter-argument from the government or opinion from the government. Whatever comes out from the mouths of opposition MPs, it's unfiltered and it's just reported. And an innocent bystander who's just taking a passing interest in politics could be mistaken for thinking that Scott Morrison is still the Prime Minister, or if it's not him, it's Peter Dutton, or that James Patterson is the Home Affairs Minister when he's actually not. So this is a problem with the media and the way that they frame the news from a conservative perspective. And I don't know exactly how this is going to change, but we talk about the culture of politicians needing to change, but it seems that the culture of journalism and political reporting also needs to change. Let's break this down. Had they had security vetting of staff, it's quite possible that a trial that's currently happening in Toowoomba may not be happening if the trial of the high-profile person is who a lot of people, not necessarily me, suspect who it's about. So not only was it irrelevant, it was kind of shooting yourself in the foot. But then that's the whole James Patterson career, irrelevant and foot shooting all wrapped in one. The Australian media is in a very parlous condition and has been since at least, to be fair, as a historian. When does the Sydney Morning Herald start? 1831. I think it's the it's the longest serving one. It's never been a great paper and Australia has never had a great newspaper in the way that the New York Times was great or the London Times was great or Le Monde or any of the other great papers. 
I know that the people who work for them claim that they are. And, of course, I've got nothing against working your guts out and doing your best and claiming that. But ultimately, you get the very odd occasional excellent story, but then it'll be balanced by something on why shoe sizes matter or how to host the perfect dinner party or celebrity gossip, which includes the celebrity going to the supermarket and buying fruit or vegetables. Now, for all I know, there could be some kind of deeper code in in all of this, but I doubt it. I don't think there is a secret code in there anywhere. What you see is pretty much what you get. But the Labor government, Uh, it does need to work out a strategy to deal with this issue. When the Labor Party was in opposition, we criticised them for not having enough attention to detail, and this might lose them the 2022 federal election. Well, we were wrong about that. They did end up winning the 2022 election. But now they're in government, they've got a lack of detail issue of a different kind. Maybe there needs to be better media management. Having a good story to tell to the electorate doesn't mean anything if they're not getting the message out because the opposition is swamping the airwaves and filling up the media landscape with meaningless garbage. And this situation is not new. The Labor government would know from history that it never gets a fair hearing from the mainstream media, and that includes the ABC in recent times. Labor is always disadvantaged by a mediocre media in Australia, and we've argued this for a long, long time, but there needs to be big media reform in Australia. And for as long as the government refuses to act on this, it will be at a disadvantage. And I'm not suggesting that the government takes control of the media like in China or North Korea or in Russia, but developing a fairer media and a reporting process that is far more professional would be in the public interest. And in in the long term, it would help all governments. So reform of the media really is long overdue. And I really don't understand why the government isn't doing anything at all in this area. I don't understand it either. They get maybe two or three positive stories and then 25 negative ones. I don't know why they're trying to treat them nicely. They're going to get bad press anyway. You may as well go down fighting and make it a bit easier, at the very least, make it a bit easier for the next Labor government to chip away at this poor and ineffective and unfair system. It seems, and I hope I'm wrong, but it seems that the Labor Party is not interested in poor and unfair and unaffected at the moment. It's more interested in keeping it balanced for everyone rather than trying to balance it back the the right way. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Mm